0: Dear listeners, welcome to Medicine Today on Digital Health, a podcast on digital innovation in medicine and healthcare supported by the medical journal Medicine Today. I am your host, Tiasa Zeitz, and today I'm taking you to the land where innovation runs on steroids, Israel. <music> Israel is a country of 8 million people attributing around 7.5% of the GDP to healthcare. Serial entrepreneurship is the norm here, fueled by military service discipline, high population education and good ties with the best education institutions and big industry players from the USA. As you will hear, the level of inspiration in Israel is overwhelming. It's fair to admit that Israelis are also excellent at marketing, so keep a little bit of skepticism in mind when listening. In this episode, four speakers explain their views on Israelis' determination to radically reshape healthcare. First, let's hear from Levi Shapiro and... He is an entrepreneur, investor, and the organizer of the M-Health Israel Conference, an annual event on digital health innovation, which has been organized for the fifth consecutive year in September this year. What is it about Israel that makes it so special?
1: Compared to other uh, life science clusters, we have the highest uh, rate of um, graduate-level education, Roughly 48% of the population has a graduate degree, which means a uh, collegiate level or above, and that's very helpful. Uh, another very unique attribute besides the human resources is the ready access to capital. So there's a very strong culture of angel and seed capital and a very active and, I would say, uh, productive role by the Israeli government. Um, often they're willing to provide matching funds for R&D. Not for marketing, not for sales, but if it's uh, commercializing fundamental R&D, the government is generally willing to sponsor about 50% of uh, R&D development costs. And that can be a lifeline for an early-stage company. So you see quite a few, and by the way, they'll do that up to $1.2 million.
0: One uh, important influence is also the uh, tight connections to the U.S. A lot of Israelis go to the U.S. to get education at the best universities and come back. I think this was also the case in uh, in your case. You lived in the U.S.
1: So I moved to Israel six years ago. Israel is like a Silicon Valley tech cluster. There's some very unique attributes Um, But here it's a little bit more accessible. We have 300 multinational R&D centers, which means great technology can find a corporate partner quite easily without ever leaving Israel. Those 300 corporate R&D centers range from Intel, which has 11,000 staff and is the largest private employer here in Israel, to all sorts of um, global players. Two-thirds of those are American companies. Half of the world's Jewish population lives in the United States. There's very strong cultural, uh, even political and historical ties, and generally that's been the route to market for Israeli technology companies outside of healthcare as well as with healthcare um, funding from uh, U.S. entities typically uh, listing on NASDAQ uh, or some kind of American acquirer. So uh, that's been the model. What's changed now is there's much more Chinese capital that's flowing into Israel.
0: What kind of innovations are we talking about when it comes to digital health? So what kind of technologies are um, startups here developing? And you're also present at a lot of other events around the world, so you can compare how advanced startups uh, elsewhere are compared to Israel.
1: We do not have a healthcare crisis, unique relative to the United States. Our healthcare system is relatively efficient. It's about 7.5% of GDP, which compares favorably to uh, the OECD, which is about 12%, and the United States, which is uh, 18% of GDP. What we tend to see in digital health is, um, IT skill sets applied towards healthcare challenges. Sometimes those skill sets come from, um, military expertise. Uh, things like imaging that we're using for uh, Israeli intelligence. Um, we're set, we're essentially in the third wave of Israeli digital health innovation. The first trigger was three G, and a number of telehealth uh, companies emerged using telecom skill sets. The second wave was enterprise software, with the trigger being Obamacare, and we saw interoperability, healthcare exchange, um, essentially enterprise software applied towards healthcare. What's new now that I think we're doing a great job of concerns personalized medicine, big data-based, cloud-based healthcare solutions, um, essentially leveraging Israel's repository of 24 years of EMR data, universal EMR data, which can be licensed by uh, some Israeli startups from the major HMOs and applied towards a personalized big data-based diagnostic or uh, medical tool. I think that's very unique. Quite a few of the startups that we have here licensing this uh, raw data, using their own data scientists to personalize and contextualize that data, and really providing a unique um, competitive advantage for some of those companies.
0: AI, machine learning, big data, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, blockchain even today are all buzzwords that a lot of startups use. So can you maybe name a few examples that are most promising at the moment?
1: Sure. So uh, I'll use an example. We just had a conference, and thank you for coming and, uh, and uh, moderating uh, the early stage VC panel at our conference. One of the uh, big announcements was from um, Dr. Scott Dolchowski, who's the chief medical officer of Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. They announced a, an AI healthcare challenge in which they'll apply 75,000 US dollars and a great deal of their internal expertise towards AI solutions. The bottom line is um, Henry Ford and other major US health systems have these repositories of unstructured data. They're not sure what to do with it. They desperately need some form of um, expertise that can uh, apply their data scientists Towards using data for uh, better outcomes. So that's what we're seeing a lot of. Um, believe it or not, we had a startup contest yesterday, and um, all three of the there were three winning companies. All three were AI and data science related, which is fascinating. There's such huge potential, such huge potential to apply the unstructured data we have and reduce costs and improve outcomes and make medicine better. And I think that's what uh, the world is coming here to find
0: you've organized the m health israel conference 5 times uh, by now so in 5 years how do you see the development of complexity of the the solutions or problems that the startups are addressing
1: well, everything has changed. The world has drastically changed. The very first mHealth um, Israel conference, we probably had about uh, 15 companies apply for the startup contest. We approached major farmers, major players in the ecosystem, and they didn't understand why we were doing mHealth and what the point was. That's really changed. We had 66 applicants for this year's startup contest. The teams come from tremendous IT backgrounds. The world is um, – we had uh, over 60 major uh, presenters from global corporates. We had the uh, former U.K. health minister, the CEO of Hims, CEO of a GE uh, business unit. So the world has changed. The quality of the uh, startup pool has improved. And um, it's growing, and it's very exciting. We had players who have nothing to do with healthcare, but feel that this is very exciting, like ARM, the world's largest uh, mobile chip OEM, Deutsche Telekom. Very nice mix. There is this interesting overlap of IT and healthcare, and everyone's trying to figure out what the future is. And what's exciting is uh, being part of a large pool of um, talented motivated experts who want to help change that.
0: When you visit a conference like this you, and get an insight into how things are working, everything looks very perfect and better than the rest of the world. Also, thanks to uh, good presentation skills that you Israelis have. So I have to ask, what are the weak points and what can you say is overhype?
1: Well, Startupville is about a hype that's real. But fundamentally, great technology is compelling. Really, really good technology is compelling. Um, now, finding a market for that technology is a challenge, and it's probably even more difficult in a healthcare context like the United States, where it's a very fragmented, um, uh, opaque go-to-market uh, environment. Um, overhyped, um, things that don't have a real need from doctors. So I think Israel's challenge, we're, we're fairly good at um, commercializing great technology. The uh, Weitzman Institute is a global top 10. I think it was global top 15, the only non-U.S. institute that uh, appeared in the top 15 this year. Tel Aviv University was ranked, actually, I think number one or number two in the world for per capita uh, startup founders. So we've got this great base of uh, good um commercialization opportunities. It's easy access to capital. Companies are being created. The weak point is, are we really solving a problem? And that is a challenge for Israelis because we don't have that problem in in Israel. We have a rather efficient healthcare system that's covered by our tax base with very long um, life expectancy. Male Israelis live longer than uh, any other males outside of Asia. So the joke I tell is when I moved to Israel, I added 4.6 years to my life. And then I also follow on and say that's because of the hummus. So um, the challenge for Israeli startups is the U.S. is the target. And yet the U.S. is a big mystery in terms of uh, the uh, healthcare go-to-market. And that's really where a lot of the companies here fall down. And also, because of that seed capital, there's a huge pool of companies with somewhere between 500 k and $2 million in funding who then reach a very um, accelerated uh, valley of death because there's limited institutional capital relative to the, the pool and quantity of seed capital. So we have a lot of great companies, great technologies with full-time teams, a few pilots, and they simply aren't going to raise that $5 million Series A. Um, So that's a huge challenge. And the reason they're not doing it is the validation challenge and making sure the doctors are in love with this. And an American doctor's uh, thought process is is very foreign to a a team of Israeli tech founders.
0: From your expertise and insight into the digital health space, what would you say are going to be the major things, let's say, in five years? Two years ago, you said that wearables are dead. They're not quite dead yet, but still, um, where do you see the innovation going from the idea stage to actually already being at least partially implemented or developed?
1: First of all, thank you for remembering my comments from two years ago. And I'll actually, um, you know, if you look, uh, Intel killed their wearables team. Fitbit has gone through some serious trials and tribulations. Uh, I would argue that uh, two years ago, investing in wearables was probably not a great bet. Right now, I think um, we're in a position where we're under-resourced. There's fewer medical professionals, especially for the bottom of the pyramid, developing world, emerging markets. We simply don't have those skills where we need them. So somehow, upskilling people transforming them um, into healthcare professionals using artificial intelligence is a real, real interesting uh, proposition. Now, doing that is a long road. I'm not sure how we're going to do that, but um, we have more complexity. We have an aging population globally. We have um, great digital tools. At the 2020 Olympics, we're going to have 5G deployed by Japan. What are we going to do with that in an environment and a reality where there's just not enough healthcare professionals? And some of those activities as uh, I'm not the first one to say this, but 60 to 80% of a doctor's time is spent on administrative tasks. Not a good way for a doctor to spend their time. What can we do as a technology community to empower our existing pool and even enable folks to become um healthcare experts at some level. To me, that's where the world is going.
0: Digital health is taken seriously on the national level in Israel. There is a special department for digital health inside the Ministry of Health, and communication is established among different departments inside the government. Our next two speakers are Director of Digital Health Department at the Ministry of Health, Rani Shapiro, and the head of the same department, Shira Levami. We talk about the multidisciplinary collaboration among different departments and experts inside the government. As the first speaker you will hear, Shira Alevami says, the government recognizes that it's not enough to just observe the development of the ecosystem. Progress must be encouraged through policy and incentive from top down.
2: What we have is actually a joint department that is responsible both for the IT of the Ministry of Health and for promoting digital health in the Israeli healthcare system. And we understood that it's not enough to just let the the ecosystem do things. We need to be able to move them in the right direction. And what we actually do is regulation, encouraging or, or promoting areas where we want the market to go. And we also... see ourselves as the responsible for um, paving the roads between healthcare organizations. We started a national health information exchange, one of the first in the world that connects all of our public healthcare organizations. And now we're doing the same for administrative health processes, connecting all the different
0: organizations. So what kind of projects uh, are you promoting? How much are you attributing to digital health in terms of how big is your team and maybe even what are the encouragements from the government side to startups.
3: We're running both projects that enable the collection and uh, documentation of data such as building uh, clinical files. We also see ourselves as enablers for the whole system to have documentation possibilities such as even small private clinics. We have a huge project that runs the interoperability uh, infrastructure in Israel that enables each and every organization to join the network. Uh, we have a project of a national infrastructure for big data. I want to add
2: to that that Israel looks at how it can promote the digital aspects and the digital technology in, in all of the different areas. And it has a, a team called Digital Israel working in, in many areas. So we're the branch working on digital health as part of the Ministry of Health.
0: And you mentioned at mHealth Israel that you have 85 WhatsApp mm-hmm. groups. Can you comment on that? What kind <laughs> of groups are these? I mean, how do you manage to even communicate in them? It's time-consuming.
3: It is time-consuming, uh, but it does also enable us to uh, <laughs> multitask. We can consult Whether we are in the same meeting or if one representative goes to a meeting and the others are absent, we can also bring the other opinions or or notions into a meeting, and this is very, very efficient. What uh,
0: kind of people are in the
3: groups? We have both people from within our department, in the various teams. We're running over 200 projects simultaneously. And also we have groups with our partners from the government and with our partners...
2: uh, I actually want to reply with a question. I don't understand how we can do what we do without all of these watch-up groups. I can't understand how we ever lived without it. And it's what enables collaboration within and between organizations broadening the way we think about issues because we consult continuously.
3: And also it expresses the way we work. We work sharing and collaborating and consulting all the time. So thanks. I want
2: to say one thing to digital health innovators. So what we look at is the system-wide innovation, and we look at the way solutions are built for connecting organizations and not just finding specific solution for something. And I think that uh, when you're thinking of a solution, not to look at how it's going to look on my mobile phone, but how it's going to connect to everything else that happens to the patient in the system. And and I think otherwise many of these things will will not succeed. I'll give an example of one of the challenges we're facing right now. Uh, We're looking at how to incorporate information from uh, IoT information, from from apps, from sensors, from wearables, from all of the different aspects. And, and the, the problem that we have is not that there's not enough of these, there's plenty of those, but how can we manage this information? What kind of platform do we need to have, and we haven't found one yet, that can incorporate this information, analyze it, and, and be the basis for operational uses and for big data and, and analytic uses?
0: The whole system and innovation um, are changing Israel rapidly. In in what time uh, frames are you looking at when you are preparing the visions? Where do you see healthcare or digital health in Israel in five or ten years?
2: Well, we look at both the long-term or medium-term vision and the short-term vision. We can't come with solutions that will only start providing uh, ROIs in ten years. So, for example, we're, we're working on a national precision medicine initiative and we're building it as an infrastructure but we also see things that can already be done in the very short term in immediate research that can be done so we, we, we have to look at various time frames simultaneously.
0: So what does it, this precision
3: uh, medicine national
0: idea entail?
3: We're building a community of volunteers. of uh, We're looking at at least 100,000 volunteers that would donate their gen- genomics data and their clinical data that, uh, as you know, we have in Israel plenty of. Uh, also behavioral or uh, the streaming physiological data, patient-originated data. And we want to build uh, an infrastructure for research over those all those types of data combined. If I look forward, one of the things that we really try to achieve is the ability to incorporate third parties or other innovators' ideas into the general architecture of the Israeli health system. And this is something that we're planning now, the infrastructure that it would enable third parties, whatever, uh, decision support systems or whatever, to be incorporated easily into the various organizations in Israel. And I think this is something in a time frame of uh, single years, maybe two years, uh, to look forward.
0: The innovation and translation of it in practice could not be possible without adequate support from prominent medical experts. And this is exactly who our last speaker today is. Iyal Zimlichman is the Deputy General Director and Chief Medical Officer of the Shiba Medical Center. He explains how the medical center with 2,000 hospital beds, a gas station, two shopping malls, four hotels and 8,000 employees is approaching innovation. As a symbolic gesture of living in the digital era, Shiva is transforming a six-story paper medical records archive building into a new innovation center, where they will merge internal experts, outside startups, and interested partners into a one, fast-acting innovation hub.
4: I'm chief medical officer for the past year and also in charge of medical innovation, and I was the chief quality officer before this, since 2013. I uh, happened to be in the U.S. for uh, for four years during the time of uh, Obamacare, which was quite an interesting period, especially from a uh, digital health and uh, the high-tech act that was uh, um, legislated at the time. Um, I was on a few of the uh, uh, advisory committees as well. So it was very interesting for me to come from Israel, which is more of a digitalized country in terms of uh, medicine, and to see the attempts in the U.S. to try and get to that point. Obviously, the challenges in the U.S. market uh, are much bigger in terms of the size, uh, how do you get hospitals to uh, implement electronic medical records, how do you get them to implement the meaningful elements of the electronic medical record. One of the things that I really uh, learned a lot by staying in that time in the US is learning how to make sure that you're actually gaining value from the digital health devices that you're using. Uh, How do you make sure that it's uh, cost sensitive so that you actually save money at the end of the day and you show a return on the investment?
0: So Shiva Medical Hospital is a paperless hospital. Right. How does that translate to the patient so from the patient perspective how does it look like to be admitted to the hospital here compared to a completely inter not interoperable hospital in the u.s where going from one doctor to another doctor means like explaining everything over and over again because the the connectivity is not there
4: a couple of things that are very much patient centered for some as an example one of the things is the patient portal we've uh invested a lot in our patient portal. We try to get, obviously, as many patients as possible on the patient portal, and they can access it through their smartphone or through the computer at home. Uh, But the other thing is they're also open to the medical records while they're hospitalized in the hospital. So every patient has a tablet um, on a retractable arm attached to the bed, and on that tablet, they could see their medical information. They could see CT scans, for example, or laboratory results. So everything that happens during the hospitalization, they get right away just like the staff does. Uh, we also allow them to access other data, like they would see who's the staff at the, uh, at the department they're at, what are the visiting hours, uh, what would be uh, um, prepared for lunch or dinner or all of that. So in terms of the digital aspect, the patient here is much more exposed to uh, to all these elements I mentioned that than other hospitals I've seen.
0: So does that mean that if I, as a patient, go, let's say, abroad to a completely different hospital, I can actually show the doctor there all the data through the app?
4: Yes. You have access to completely all the data. You would see the uh, whether it's pathology or imaging, everything is there. The other thing also is, of course, the interoperability system that we have here in Israel, which means that every medical encounter in the country, we get as the as the doctor who's treating the patient right now who's hospitalized at Chiba, we get access to all of the data, regardless of where that was, whether it's uh, from a different hospital, an HMO private hospital or even the army. Uh, All of that is open to us uh, immediately, so we know everything the patient has gone through.
0: How has that interoperability been achieved? Maybe we can go a step back here story-wise, explaining a bit how did Israel manage to become so IT-advanced. In my perspective, if I look at the countries, what I see is that if you have a vision at the beginning and you start implementing that vision, such as Estonia, for example, Mm -hmm. then things have a chance to be implemented. But once you build from the wrong perspective and you have many systems that don't talk to each other, then it's really, really difficult to, to change things.
4: So first of all the system is built in a way where you know compared to the US where I'm quite familiar uh, it's much easier. Uh, we have basically four HMOs and every citizen or uh, really could choose which one of the HMO HMOs is on. Now the HMOs already in the beginning of the 2000 years um, within 3 or 4 years they all went digital. So they made a decision and if you're a doctor working in one of the HMOs if you're not uh, recording the patient encounter on an EMR you wouldn't get paid but that seems so
0: simple right why why is it so hard to implement in the in other countries i mean there is legislation but still hospitals or doctors just don't care
4: about it so the hmos had to go through the processes of actually choosing a system implementing the system teaching uh, the doctors and the nurses how to use the the emrs all of that was a transition period we went through, again, through during the early 2000 years. The hospitals started at that time also. We were completely paperless from 2004. We had our first EMR implemented in 2002. Uh, some of the other hospitals came later. And there are a couple of hospitals that are still not uh, digital in Israel, but I think 80% of them are. The other thing is the interoperability, which comes this, in this story comes another Factor, which are the uh, private companies we have here. And this is a specific company called DB Motion, which does not exist anymore, basically sold to uh, Allscripts, uh, the large uh, American EMR. And DB Motion really started again in the early 2000 years. They had a vision that they would be connecting uh, different EMRs. And the challenge that they had to face was, how do I turn different languages into one language? So, for example, um, hemoglobin, in one EMR, you use one term. In another EMR, you use another term. But somebody has to say, well, they're both hemoglobin. And this is how they've done this. They've built a very sophisticated network of ontologies to really understand all of the different hemoglobins, all of the different myocardial infarction. And by 2015, we have 100% of the country on the system. And by that, I think we're very unique. We're probably the only country in the world.
0: So what does it mean in terms of public health or health policy? How much research can be done by the Ministry of Health?
4: The system was mostly designed for clinical care. You know, if a, if a person comes into our emergency department and this is the first time I'm seeing him, I pull him up on my uh, on my system and I see everything that happened with him throughout his life. Uh, even if that patient was examined by a military doctor in a tent in the desert, we still get that data captured. A hundred percent of medical encounters in the country are captured. So that really has a big impact on quality of care, on cost of care. We don't do redundant testing because the CT was done last week. Why should we repeat the CT? The other reason is something we are now starting to uh, to explore. And this is what you mentioned is how do you actually take advantage of this huge Amount of data really having all of your pa- all of the patients in the country, all of the citizens in, co- in the country, being able to look at all of their medical data. And the government has now put in legislation that would allow researchers access to that data. For a couple of years, there were a lot of uh, political movements that were saying, you know, can we access the data? Who owns the data? Is it owned by the HMO? Is it owned by the by the patient? And of course, we had to go through several processes. But we're certainly at a point right now where we have a mechanism in place that uh, researchers, epidemiology, um, the government can go in and look at large populations and see whether there's an epidemic that's starting or are there are any changes in medical services that, we, that from a policy perspective you need to look at.
0: Data access is one of the crucial things that is usually the problem when it comes to changing healthcare strategies, because there's the issue of if the government is in charge of the data, even if you think that from epidemiology point of view, that's good. Somebody might say, what if the wrong political party comes to rule the the country? What are you going to do there? So,
4: so there are safeguards and again if even if you are the Ministry of Health obviously a part of the government and you want to look at the data you need to apply and there is a committee that would examine if this is for the right purpose. So all of that is regulated and it did take us a while to put down those regulations and decide on them. Also for example can patients or citizens opt out of the system okay. uh, or do or do you need to opt into the system in the first uh, in the first place? So they can opt out. In 2013, when we started working on on the national program, we did come out with ads on the newspapers and on websites and uh, on the TV saying that if you're not interested, you need to call this number or this uh, web address that you could go in and ask not to include your data. Very, very few have done that.
0: Practical. Right, right. It's definitely easier to count on people just not caring than them caring to opt in, right?
4: And and the reason that we've allowed that is because it really makes a lot of sense. If your data is on the system, you will be getting better healthcare. And again, I mean, you think of many many examples where a patient comes in. Sometimes you're in a road accident and they know nothing about you as you come to the to the emergency department. But now I can pull all that information, even if there's no family member or if you're unconscious. I get all that information, I can treat you better, I know about your comorbidities.
0: There's quite a few things Shiba is thriving at. For one thing, you have virtual reality uh, simulation uh, center. When was it built? How much was invested in it?
4: We have a simulation center which we use to train our staff. And we have the virtual reality center which we use to treat our patients. Just for our listeners who are not aware, Shiba Medical Center is one large medical center with uh, 2,000 beds, uh, which has on the same campus both an acute care hospital and a rehabilitation hospital. The rehabilitation hospital is one of the largest in the world. It's about 600 beds. Uh, just for rehab, and we do a lot of sophisticated uh, technology, a very sophisticated uh, virtual reality platform that really allows you to do many, many things with the floor moving in different directions and different angles and allows you to work on your balance and many other factors that are critical. On top of that, we also have programs that we outreach to the homes for uh, tele-rehabilitation and cardiac rehabilitation that we do at home which is an extension of our virtual reality program. This is online with a physiotherapist who's at the hospital and works uh, simultaneously with about 3 to 4 patients, so obviously it saves you time. You could do 3 to 4 sessions uh, at once. What we've shown is that many patients after they are discharged from the from the uh, rehab hospital have a decline in their functional status because they come from an environment where there was very robust rehabilitation. When they get home, obviously there's much less robust uh, rehabilitation, and there's a decline. And we try to compensate that by using the uh, tele rehab, and in the next phase also uh, VR at home, which we're not doing at this point, but we have plans to to add.
0: The virtual reality uh, center looks very fun. If you don't mm-hmm. need it, you know, it's a it's like a 4D cinema where you're in this uh, closed space surrounded. With phobia that you want to get rid of, for example, I was, uh, I saw the simulation of uh, fear from flying. What are the other examples that you try to help patients
4: with? There are different programs for different needs. A lot to work on balance and on manual, uh, manual work. So for example, if you're in a virtual reality environment, you might be walking in a forest and you have birds coming at you and you need to touch the birds. So that works on your coordination. Patients love it, and uh, it's been around for about four or five years. We're over 1,000 patients that were treated. Uh, also with our tele-rehab, where we already have 30,000 patients treated. So I think we're probably the center with the most experience in the world with tele-rehab. And cardiac tele-rehab, which is something we're doing right now in Israel, you're entitled to cardiac rehab after an acute MI or after a cardiac surgery, but only about 30 to 40% of the people actually get it because the, there aren't as many in-hospital places to do this and there's a long wait to get into a, a facility for cardiac rehab. But once we do cardiac rehab at home, it would allow us to get to 100% of the population and it's being covered by the uh, health insurance.
0: A big thing in IT and industry uh, in general at the moment is blockchain. How do you see its application in healthcare and are you already enthusiastic or skeptic about what's happening on the market?
4: I mean blockchain the blockchain the main use for that would be for uh, in terms of data encryption. Data is, is obviously critical to make many of the things we want to achieve achievable. It's a very strong point at Shiba. We have uh, huge databases. Uh, and also as you talk about data and big data, you would need to find solutions on how to anonymize the data in a way that we would be able to, you know, to play with it, to work with it, to so have to get to a point where we could put the data on a disk on key and go around and, uh, and innovate on the data. We, we call it sometimes liberating the data. The data is there, but how do we make it actionable? I think blockchain is one of those approaches to do that. I think it's very early on still. Uh, we have not seen the full potential. Um, we are using some other methods to do that. Uh, we have uh, a system we use here at Chiba by a company called MD Clone that basically does, makes synthetic data out of real data, uh, basically retaining all the properties of the original data, but it's all fake. Uh, so if you have the name of the patient in the original data, it would be a scrambled name in the in the synthetic data. So that
0: enables you to do research?
4: In, right. It enables us to do research. And we know for sure that all of the uh, statistical tests would still, properties would still be kept in the synthetic data. There's been uh, much research around that. Um, so in terms of research, it's a huge enabler. We also know that's true for genomic data, not just clinical data which of course is is something very important for us as we move forward. Uh, What we don't know yet is how good is this working with more sophisticated uh, big data methodologies like uh, machine learning and and deep learning. Uh, But we're starting to get more and more experience with that as well.
0: From your perspective, what is it about Israel that makes it an environment which enables so much of success in innovation?
4: I think the culture is a culture that uh, motivates people to innovate, motivates people to try. Um, and even if you fail, you try again. There is no shame in failing. And uh, most people here have uh, tried a few startups before they found one that actually works. The other thing is, you know, I think people are have the confidence to try what they believe in. You know, from kindergarten to, to school to the army, people speak their mind. They're not ashamed to say what they think, and they, if they have something they believe in, they would try to build it. but of course, on top of that, there is what the uh, the government has done uh, to uh, obviously to uh, enhance innovation and in some of the programs that were done in Israel, the accelerators uh, that we have here where the where the government is paying eighty five percent. Of the, of the funds in the accelerators and the outside bodies need to come up with the added 15%, which is a program that now other countries are trying to imitate.
0: You're working with around 10 different startups and they're diving into the space of AI and big data using deep learning algorithms to analyze imaging and clinical data for radiology. And then you have the high accuracy predictive clinical analytics to improve clinical outcomes and reduce hospital costs. You're using a startup to prevent medical errors, real-time predictive analytics, Where do you get the funds for this? How do you choose startups that you work with? And for the conclusion, what is the current innovation you're working on or collaborating with that is giving you most hope for further development?
4: So first of all, it's it's a big part of our strategy to find our partners from outside, apart apart from obviously innovating from within. Uh, we work also with companies that come to us because they need the data, they need the clinical sites, they need the physicians. And, of course, we provide them with all of that, and we work with them in co-development. Um, many of the companies um, that you mentioned are companies that grew out of Shiba. That The idea started here with a physician or a scientist that uh, had an idea, uh, performed a proof of concept, and then went on to uh, uh, to start a company. Um, and then we license the IP, obviously, to that company to take it forward on a commercial uh, to the commercial uh, potential. A lot of these that you mentioned are around big data. Myself, I'm a big believer in big data and what big data can do to us in terms of predictive analytics, looking at the intersection between genomic data and clinical data, between proteomic data, microbiomic data, longitudinal patient-reported outcome data, and with the clinical data. When you look at all that together, this is where the real value would start emerging, I think part of the reason why we're not very happy with what has happened with precision medicine in the past years is because we thought that everything is in the genome. And we understand today that it's only part of the equation. Taking all of this together will allow us to predict in the future what medications to give a patient, what kind of complications the patient will develop, etc. So if you're asking me what I'm most um, enthusiastic about, it's probably that area, the intersection between the, the types of data.
0: This was the 17th episode of Medicine Today on Digital Health. In this season, we're looking more at organizational solutions helping healthcare become more efficient. If you like the content, do subscribe to the podcast or leave a rating or a review in iTunes. And as always, stay tuned. In the next episode, I will share with you a discussion on early stage investment with VCs active in Europe, Israel, Japan and USA.